Welcome to the Mailbag edition of Jewish Thought Flow. This is your host, Avi Cohen. So in Mailbag episodes, we get fan mail, adoring fan mail, who have questions on our show, because what we say isn't so simple, what we say may be controversial, and what we say may not intuitively match what you were thinking. So we get questions, and those questions need to be answered, and sometimes they can't be answered in email, so we like to read them on our show. Not only that, we get people involved because we read their name. They get to hear their name and their questions live on a podcast that's listened to by tens of people around the world. So this is a fantastic opportunity for you, the listener, to get your voice heard and your thoughts heard. So the way we decided to do this is me and Mati have, you know, separate friends and separate questions. So we decided that he would read me his questions that he got, and I would have to answer them, and I haven't seen them yet. And I'm going to read him my questions that I got, and he's going to have to answer those, and he hasn't seen them either. So you're going to see us unprepared, hopefully going to see a lot of flubs and gaffes, and uh, hopefully we'll catch one of us napping and maybe get a wrong answer. Yeah, so the first question we had was from Johnny Sassoon out of Seattle. Uh, we had a long back and forth over text and a phone call, but the basic question that he was asking, which I'm now asking you, Avi, is Thank you. the difference in a Jewish soul and non-Jewish soul, which we were kind of, most of our focus was on, there was a lot of halachic differences and things which didn't seem so intrinsic. What Johnny's asking is that it would seem, in exploring the Raman's position, that where he discusses the soul, and specifically where he discusses like exactly what the soul is, would be the best place to look to figure out exactly what he holds of the soul. So why was our focus so much on all these seeming extrinsic qualities? So I, I think that we we addressed this sort of. Um, we said that the, the Rambam, and we said this, anytime the Rambam discusses the soul, so you have Shemona Prakam is a big place where he discusses it. That's his uh, intro to Mesachas Avas, Perge Avas. Uh, another place the Ram talks about it is in the beginning of Meshatara there in Yisodiyatara. Um, I'm sure there are references scattered throughout my Nebuchadnezzar. I can't think of any off the top of my head. But anytime he's going to talk about it, he's going to talk about the human soul. And we gave reasons for this, right? We didn't say they're definitive. We said if we only had that source, then that would be pretty strong that the Rambam might not hold there's a difference. But we did give reasons why, even if the Rambam did hold there's a difference, he wouldn't speak it out. We said that the difference between a human soul and a Jewish soul the regular human soul and Jewish soul belongs to the esoteric parts of Taurus. We did say that. Um, we also said that perhaps he didn't have the language to put it in because he didn't have Kabbalah. But that doesn't mean that there's not a difference. So to answer it simply, the reason why we didn't draw from those sources is because those sources just talk about the difference between human souls and animal souls and describes the general human soul. So we wanted to look throughout the rest of the Rambam. Could we see any hints towards this difference? Because if it's esoteric, you'd find it in hint form more than explicit form. And the fact that he didn't say the Jewish soul is different than the human soul doesn't mean he doesn't hold of it. It just means he's only talking about the difference between human soul and animal soul. It's not like he said, oh, by the way, within humans, there's absolutely no difference between Jews and non-Jews. So it's not like he said that. I also do think that, in a sense, he is correct. I think we could have emphasized more, uh, specifically the source regarding Ashkacha Pratis. Because if you look at the Rambam, the way he defi like, defines Ashkacha Pratis in Martin Vukim 3.17, he says, divine providence is connected with divine intellectual influence. Right, so that means that our shkacha practice is, is connected with kind of Hashem's intellect, so to speak. And I mean, the more you understand, the more your life is governed by it. Yeah, and the way he describes the perfection of, of the human soul over the animal soul, or the perfection of the soul, is also through the intellect. Right. Obviously. So if Hashem's intellect is connecting to us through our intellect, and that means all humans, all humans that are governed by Hashem is through their intellect, and we see that human that Jews are governed different than non-Jews. And this is all coming through this this aspect of the soul, so it would imply that a Jew does have a non like a different soul than the non Jew. Sure, I would say that, and especially since the level of ashkacha, the level of divine providence is superior. I mean, it's it's elite in a sense. It's it's uh, focused from God right to us. You can say that uh, that quality of soul would actually be some sort of superior quality or an elite quality in terms of that connection, that intellectual connection with the human and God. Do you have a source for that, Ramam, that uh, that connects the Kshkacha Pratis to intellectual cognition of the soul? Yes, that's um, in Marna 317. It says, Divine providence is connected with divine intellectual influence, and the same beings which are benefited by the latter, so as to become intellectual, which is humans, and to comprehend things comprehensible to rational beings, are also under the control of divine providence, which examine all their deeds in order to reward or punish them, which is all humans, 
But if you see that the divine providence on Jews is different than non-Jews, then apply some difference in their intellectual soul. Yeah, that's a fair point. So, I mean, you heard it here, guys. 317, that would be the third chalik, the 17th chapter, discusses the unique relationship between one's soul, or at least the intellectual faculty of one's soul, and the divine providence of God relating to that. Yeah, and just sorry, another source, 3 in, in chalik 3, section 51, in Marnevichum again, he says, I have shown you that the intellect which emanates from God unto us is the link that joins us to God. So again, you see that this intellectual connection, which is, um, you know, is what the soul is, that aspect of the soul and also divine providence. So again, if you have a difference in one area, you'll, it implies a difference in the other. So you, so you would say difference in, um, difference in providence means difference in link to God, intellectual link to God. I'd say it definitely strongly implies it, yeah. Definitely strongly implies it. It's about a definite vague sentence. <laughs> okay, so now I'm going to ask you a question, Monty. You ask me a question, I'll ask you a question. This is from a certain Judah Lepatin from Detroit. I'm actually very close to Judah. Uh, he's a good friend of mine. And he he writes often. He's one of the biggest fans of the show. Um, so, Judah, if you're listening, just know you're our number one fan. You used to be just one fan. Now you're the number one fan. You said, now this is him speaking to me. You said that, right? We said, we said that every Jew is a portion of the world to come. And that means that Jews automatically get Olam Haba, unless they do something really, really bad. But non-Jews have to keep Sheva Mitzvah in order to receive it. So now, we did say this, right? We said that one of the proofs that the Ram holds that the Jewish soul is different than the non-Jewish soul is that we have this rule that every single Jew is a portion of the world to come. And the only way he loses that is by doing something really egregious. Now, we know... The Ram writes earlier in his Akdama to Parakachelek, which is in the 10th Parak of Sanhedrin, the Ram writes that the soul, when it's perfected, will naturally go to Lamhaba, which implies that there's a, if there's a different criteria for a Jew and non-Jew to get to Lamhaba, whereas a Jew is, so to speak, naturally attuned to it prior to losing that ability, he loses his right for Lamhaba, then that would imply, and while the non-Jew has to keep Shev Mitzvah in order to get there, there's no natural right for Olam Haba, that would imply that the natural state of the soul of the Jew and the non-Jew are, in fact, different. So Judah wanted to know as follows. Maybe you can just compare the Sheva Mitzvah B'nai Noach to the things a Jew can't hold of in order to get out. Meaning, there's a list of things that if a Jew does, he won't get Olam Haba. So why can't you compare that to the Sheva Mitzvah B'nai Noach that if a non-Jew doesn't do them, he also won't get Olam Haba. I mean, everybody has a minimum they have to do in order to get Olam Haba. The Jew has to not do these egregious things. And the non-Jew has to keep, not break any one of the Shev and Mitzvah B'nai Noach. So why would you say that there's a essential difference between those two? So I don't think there's so much a difference between having to keep the Shev and Mitzvah Noach and having to keep all the Torah and Mitzvahs insofar as both of us have some sort of thing which we have to complete in order to get Olam Haba. But as you pointed out, in the Raman Shemana Prakim says that Elam Haba is a natural progression of the perfection of the soul. So just right there, if two people have the same soul and we have a reward, which is a natural progression of perfection of that soul, there should be no difference in how to perfect that soul. So his question is kind of saying, okay, we have these two different systems, but each one has a system. So why isn't that comparable? And why can we see from the fact that they both have a system, therefore it implies that they're the same. But the fact that they have a different system to have a natural perfection, again, strongly implies that there's different. It's more than just implies. I think it's only possible to have two separate natural perfections of objects if those two objects are, in fact, different. Well, I think it's even stronger than that because I, I don't think it's just like two separate paths. Again, the Jew, Shevmetz of the non-Jew equals all of Torah to the Jew because the Jew has to keep all of Torah. However, when it comes to Lamhaba, the Jew doesn't have to keep all, all of Torah to get to Lamhaba. The non-Jew does have to keep all Shevmetz Menach. So even if you want to say that Shevmetz Menach equals all of Torah for the Jew, and there are just two ways to get to the same goal, the fact that the Jew doesn't have to complete all his missions in order to get there, and the non-Jew does, further implies there's a natural attuning of the soul towards Lamhaba. And this is further cemented by the phrase, every Jew has a portion. That means something. There's no such phrase by a non-Jew. 
So if it was actually equal, you couldn't say Kol Yisrael Yishmachelikom Haba. The phrase Kol Yisrael Yishmachelikom Haba implies that's where you're starting off. You're starting off on Olam Haba unless you lose it. As the Rambam at the end over there, at the end of Kedamel Parak Chelik says, if you don't do these things, you're still a Jew and therefore you get Olam Haba, which sort of cements in the fact you're still a Jew. Because if you break any of these things, then maybe you're not a Jew. Then you lose that status. But as long as you're a Jew, you're going to get that clean Olam Haba. I think actually focusing on the status quo, the way you answered the question, is is stronger than what I was saying. Because we do have, within Judaism, we have different kind of, I guess, different people with who have different mitzvahs. We have Kain Levi Yisrael. Kind of have different mitzvahs, which Yisrael doesn't have. And we have, you know, a Melech has a different mitzvah than your average person. We have men and women having different mitzvahs. And we wouldn't say that those people have different souls, even though the natural perfection of that soul would be to... There's a different method of naturally perfecting the soul. Yeah, no, for sure. Well, I actually want to ask you, why is that not a question on on them being the same? Sorry, on, on them being different. Well, they are different. The souls are different of a kind of living in well, some, some aspect of it, yeah, sure. I mean, just like men and women are different, right? I mean, there is a universality to every Jew, the Kol Yisraeli Haba, but there's not necessarily within Jews, everybody identical. So you'd be, there's two major classes, you have Jews, non-Jews, and then within Jews, there's obviously a difference. There's men, women, there's Kalim Yisrael. Okay, so when we say that there's a difference in a Jew and a non-Jew, how is that different than saying there's a difference between a Kalim Levi Yisrael? So in terms of this proof, it's not different. I mean, in terms of extrapolating from how to get Talim Hab, it's not different, except for the aspect of Kalim Yisrael Yishlam Chelek Lam which is, so to speak, the natural uh, perfection that every Jew has. So, like, close relation would not be abrogated by the things that a Kohen has to do over Yisrael. Like, let's say a Kohen decides, I just don't care about serving the base of Mekdash, right? Yeah. Or, I don't want to eat, I want to eat, um, Batuma in, in, in a state of impurity. Um, and he does it out of Taiva, the Ram would say he still has a Chelek Haba. Okay. So those, diff- the differences between the, the Kohen and the Yisrael and the Levi, are not the things that would kick him out of Olam Haba. So th- there is a universality to the Kol Yisrael Yishim Chelek Olam Haba, which doesn't exist by the non-Jew. Um, but certainly there are some differences in the soul. From the other sources, the ones we saw in the first episode of the racism, which is all the other Rishonim who sort of describe the difference between the Jew and the non-Jew, there's clearly the universality of difference between the Jew and the non-Jew, even though there's also a difference between Kol Yisrael, just like there's a difference between man and woman. And guess what? There's a difference in the soul between every single one of us. Right, okay, that's also true. Right, okay. Um, so here's the next question. This is also from Johnny. I kind of broke up. He didn't exactly ask each of these questions specifically, but I kind of broke up the general conversation we had into these three questions. Um, so the second question was a kind of a, a strong question. He asked, most, many of the differences that we said from the Rambam, he wanted to say could be explained through a general social or cultural norms. You want to give some examples of that? Like, what do you... Yeah, so like uh, at the end we brought in that the Rambam says that the natural, uh, you know, a Jew is naturally going to be uh, a, a Rachman. He's going to be kind to people. He's not going to be an officer. He's not going to be cruel. Uh, we brought in the the Gemara in Gittin that says that a Jew naturally wants to do the right thing. He wants to do what Hashem wants. Okay, so in general, it's true. If, you know, a Jew wants to do the right thing. A Jew is generally going to be kind. We have many cultural differences. We can say Asians, you know, generally are more. Uh, scholastic we can say uh careful <laughs> you know african-americans are generally more athletic so, i mean i wouldn't say if you see a, a black is not athletic he's not black unless i'm joe biden <laughs> no but I, so that i think that i think the last point you just said answered it like the the sources in the rambam say that for example one is talking about marriage and it says if you see a jew who's not kind be concerned he's not jewish well, why would you be concerned he's not Jewish? If it's a culture thing, then all you have to do is be concerned he doesn't have the culture. Maybe he's not religious. But why would you assume he's not Jewish? That sounds more like an inherent thing, like, oh, he must not be Jewish if he's not kind, as opposed to just not religious or lacking the culture. Okay, but not all the sources that we saw from the Rambam said that. You just said, it's, uh, if he's from Zeri Yisrael, he's, he's Bichlal, they're... they're uh... They have a certain character trait. Yeah, so, but again, the Ram doesn't differentiate between religious and not religious. He just says Zeri Yisrael. Now, obviously, it doesn't apply to every Jew. There are cruel Jews, but it is a 
significant character trait that carries throughout generation and regardless of religion, meaning if you're Jewish proper, not the religion uh, Jew, um, and therefore that at least implies, again, you can squirm your way out of it and say, no, no, it's just the culture, but it certainly does imply it's something inherent. <coughs> Sorry. Okay. Okay, so so that, that concludes your questions from Johnny? Uh, no, there's one more, but... Okay, so I guess we're switching off. So, Okay, so this, this question again is from Judah. Uh, he wanted to know as follows. So he said as follows. I think it makes sense that people would be different from one another. Each and every person is an individual. And Hashem would interact with Hashem's children in different ways. Just as a parent treats their children in diff- uh, differently from one another. I still think, though, that it is a mistake to claim superiority, just difference. So Judah, I think, is saying that, yeah, you show difference between Jews and non-Jews. But we're all God's children. And just like, even though there's difference in one's children, and they're treated differently because of that. So we're not denying that the Torah treats Jews differently than non-Jews. There's no reason to claim superiority. So what would you say to that? Okay, so if you see that a bu- there's a bunch of differences between different people and all the differences line up in favor of of one of the sides. So, for example, here, we have a bunch of differences between Jews and non-Jews that we're claiming that the Rambam's uh, making based on essential difference. Well, I think he's asking universally, not just in the Rambam. That in general there's a difference? No, like even in any of the opinions we mentioned. Okay, so, says- yes, even more. It's even more explicit in the other sources. I was going to say even in the Rambam. But... It, the differences that are given are differences that ascribe superiority. In other words, I'm saying that there's a difference between a Jew and a non-Jew because a Jew is, let's say, the Kuzari. He says that the Jewish Neshama is easier able to attain truths and is easier able to connect to the divine. So to say that, oh, well, he's just saying there's a difference. A Jew is easier able to connect to the divine, which the Ramam says is the, uh, you know, is the highest form of man. But he's not saying he's superior, just different. Uh, I don't think that's a, I don't think that's fair to say. Yeah, I think another point is questions assumes we're all Hashem's children. I, I could be wrong, but um, it seems to be the unique aspect of the Jew is that he's only called the children of Hashem, right? It says, Yeah, in fact, the, the Kuzari, the one we, we quoted, actually says that the term B'nai Yisrael and, and B'nai Elkim is specifically in reference to this special Neshama. We saw the Barbanel also. Um, we didn't bring it because we found it actually later. I happened. This is what I was trying to tell you, that in our sources, it's not like we're looking at a book and then just copying and pasting sources or copying and pasting sources from other articles. Like These are organic sources that have been culled from our learning, um, which is why we have unique sources, unique Rambams that you won't see in an academic paper or even in, in a terror paper generally, because it's not a liquid, it's not a compilation. Like these are organic sources that we come up with. So right after we did that podcast, I, I have a, a Seder learning in the Barbanel, um, every Shabbos. And in the Barbanel, he spoke about the, the fact that on the Pasuk, um, so the Barbanel explains you shouldn't, you shouldn't ruin your, your parts of your face. Because and the, just like a father gives his face to his kid or his genetic material to his kid, so to Hashem gives a, spe- a special um, aspect of himself to the Jewish people and which is in their neshama, that they have a special aspect of their neshama that's related to Hashem. So again, also, now I do just want to say one thing, which is that superior is a weird word because superior means in a certain context, Right? Like, for example, you can say I'm better at basketball than you, and that means I'm superior in one sense. I'm better at basketball than you. But when you judge me as a person, like as a totality of a person, I don't know if it's fair to say I'm superior just because I'm better at basketball. So, so far, all we've seen is that the Jews seem to be superior at being spiritual, right? Even in the Rambam, it was all their character traits they're better at. They worry about mitzvahs. They have a natural incl- inclination to do mitzvahs. We saw from the, in the in the end of the second paragraph of, of Gerishim. We saw from all the Rishonim that we have this extra aspect of being able to connect to God in a little bit of a different manner. That doesn't mean that we're superior as in we're more important to the world to fit our role than the non-Jews are for their role. That's a separate conversation that we're not talking about right now. You can say the non-Jew is just as perfect for Israel as we are for ours. When we talk about superiority, we're talking about in one particular trait, which is ability to connect with God. Now, you quoted that that's the highest part of man. Yes and no, if that's what you're supposed to be doing. If that's not what you're supposed to be doing, then it's not the highest thing for you to do. So so I, I don't, 
you can say superiority in a particular trait without necessarily ascribing superiority as a people as whole in terms of what they're supposed to be doing in the world, which is what we try to stress that racism sort of takes a certain trait and then amplifies that to being a representative of the person's value as a human. So we're not trying to do that. We're trying to say that the non-Jew is just as valuable of a human in terms of what he's supposed to be doing as the Jew is in terms of what he's supposed to be doing. But the superior trait is certainly in this context of being able to serve Hashem better. Well, I would also say that there's a, not all roles were created equal. Like you can say that just because I'm fulfilling my role perfectly and he's fulfilling his role perfectly doesn't mean our roles are of equal importance. Like, you know, a squirrel's fulfilling the role of the world, his role of the world perfectly also. But if that role wasn't there, the world wouldn't look as much different as if, you know, Maishu wasn't there. Right, so but I think that crosses over into another topic of who who's the primary focus of creation, right? Which, I, you know, it wasn't our topic. Right, I think it's a different topic, but, I, yeah. you know. So, like, I, I think this is a very um, common conversation by race that uh, there's a book written by Charles Murray called The Bell Curve. Um, and in it, he tries to suggest that there might be – well, he doesn't fully suggest it, but he, he says the, the studies seem to at least give lend the possibility that there might be genetic sources and difference in intelligence between races. And people got very, very concerned about this because they said, um, well, isn't that – that's an absolute abhorrent form of racism to claim that there are different groups that are inherently smarter. Um, and the way I look at it, I don't think it's racist at all. I mean it, it is it is or it isn't, right? It's true or it's not true. Either they are more intelligent or not. But why are you defining a human's importance by intelligence? There are many faculties and aspects of a human. Just because one race might be better at intelligence doesn't mean another race isn't better at emotion or emotive intelligence, or they might be better at building things. Who's ascribing importance that intelligence is by definition the most important thing? So that's in terms of racism, that's I think it's a very immature view of racism to say any difference means racism. No, no. Any difference might be true or not true. It's the more moral value you add to that, which might be racist. Like picking my trait and saying, now this makes me more valuable of a human, that might be racist. But Saying I'm better at a certain trait is either true or not true. I mean, people are better or worse at certain traits. I think importance is also either true or not true. It's just not as uh, easily proven based on empirical evidence. Like, I can empirically prove if one race is smarter than another. I can't empirically, necessarily empirically prove. Which is more important. But it's harder. It does, that doesn't mean no, one is not truly more important no, than it, the other. No, it could be truly more important, but it's not based on the advantage of a particular trait. What do you mean by that? Meaning it's not it's not that there's a clear extrapolation from advantage and intelligence to more valuable as a human. That's a mistake already to make that, which I think comes a lot with the, with when people say that within Judaism, they between men and women. So they say like, oh, well, Judaism must be sexist because a man can be a rabbi. A woman can't be a rabbi. A man can lead the congregation. A woman can't lead the congregation. That's ascribing the value of a Jew as being able to lead a congregation. So you're right. If that's the value of a Jew, then the man is more valuable. But that's not the value of a Jew. The value of a Jew is serving Hashem. The men and the women do it equally in their own ways. So in terms of that, it's absolutely not sex. So that's that's all I'm trying to say. I'm not implying, by the way, that Jews aren't more important to creation. I'm just saying that's not our conversation. That's a separate podcast, separate conversation. Okay. Um, and the third point, since Masriach Zerah, we said that uh, the Jew, if uh, when he has Zerah inside the woman, when she has Zerah inside of her, when she has a seed inside of her, it's, it, it becomes like spoiled after three days because of the heat of the Jew, um, because they want to do the mitzvahs. Um, and he just wanted further clarification how that implies an intrinsic difference and not just that they want to do the right thing. Like what what exactly is the, the connection between wanting to do the right thing and an, an intrinsic difference? Why can't you say again? It's, it's kind of similar to his previous question. Well, you're saying that the course are worried about terror mitzvahs because they have terror mitzvahs? Yeah. So I would say two things to that. That's actually very similar to Judah's next question, um, which I'll read out here. Uh, well, it's actually – yes, he says, of course a Jew would be born with a concern about mitzvah versus a non-Jew because the latter doesn't have to keep mitzvahs. I don't think that necessarily implies a different soul, rather a different trait that Hashem decides, kaviachal, that Jews need and non-Jews don't because the, the Jew has the mitzvahs to keep, the non-Jew doesn't. I would say two things to that. First is a non-Jew does have mitzvahs. So that's incorrect. The non-Jew has Shev Mitzvah which can be all-consuming. And there's no reason why they shouldn't be worried about keeping those. So 
if it was true that it's just because of the mitzvahs that makes you worried, then non-Jews also should be worried about their mitzvahs. But we find no such halacha that seed in a non-Jewish woman would spoil after three days because of worry about mitzvahs. That's one aspect. Second is, again, there's no differentiation in the halacha between religious or non-religious Jews. The Ram just says it is a Jewish woman. So to say that, oh no, that's only related because they actually factually are worried about term mitzvahs because they're religious, would be to be mechadish. I mean, you'd have to make a big chadish. You'd be saying something that's not there in the text, saying that the Ramah means only for religious Jews. It doesn't say that. It says religious or non-religious Jews. So once it's for non-religious Jews, who when you ask them, they say, yeah, I couldn't care less about term mitzvahs, then there must be something deeper, unconscious, built in, that makes them naturally write about Again, the lacha would apply to a Jew whose parents weren't from, grandparents weren't from, they're the, and, and to go to them and say, oh, there's probably some culture of being worried about termites, I think is beyond the pale of ridiculous. Uh, to be fair, the, the Gemara is the one that brings down the, the, like the reason for the question as to whether it's Masriach or not, whether it, but the, the Ram doesn't actually bring down the reason. He just, he just says that the lacha is like that it's a suffolk. Right, but there's no reason to assume he's not going with the, the – those are the only reasons given the Gemara. There's no other re- way to read the Gemara. Yeah, yeah. I mean, not that I can think about it, you know. Right, I mean, the Gemara just says, and he brings down the Gemara. That's right. the only source for that, Halacha. Okay, so it's my, now it's my turn again. Um, okay, so we said that that the the Ramam says that there's a different uh, – Ein Mazel Yisrael. There's no – the Jews don't work through the constellations. And the Ram says that every Jew, his life runs according to their actions. You do the right thing, good things happen. The wrong thing, bad things happen. That's the way the Jew works. Ain Mazli Yisrael. So Judah wants to know as follows. I thought that every human being punished or rewarded by Hashem based on their actions is one of the Yogim Likram, right? One of the 13 principles of faith is that every Jew or every non-Jew, every human is governed by his actions and is responsible for his actions and he will be punished or rewarded based on how he acts. So how is the Ramam saying, now this isn't really a question on our podcast, we're more a question on the Ramam. How is the Ramam saying that only Jews are subject to this sort of relationship? I'm going to use my pass card on this one. You want to I'm call, send it right back to you. You want to call a member of the audience? <laughs> no, so I, I think, I think that, that we're confusing, conflating issues here. Um, so in terms of in terms of reward and punishment, yes, there's no human that escapes reward and punishment. Ain Mazi Yisrael doesn't mean reward and punishment. It means how the world operates in this world. Reward and punishment means you're going to pay for it. You're going to pay for it in Gehenna, hell. You're going to pay for it in Gan Eden, heaven. Or you're going to get your reward in Gan Eden. But that doesn't mean the world works like that. The world can work perfectly natural. Like by the non-Jew, his actions could be completely unrelated to what occurs in the world to him. By the Jew, though... The way the Jew, as a yachid, as an individual, or maybe perhaps as a tzibur, depending on what opinion, how you learn in the Gemara, according to the Rambam, but the Jew, it's the way the world operates. The fall and rise of the Jewish nation within the world is governed by their actions, as opposed to the non-Jew, where the punishments and rewards might not have anything to do with how the world operates. So that's how I would delineate the difference. You'd say anytime the Rambam, or let's say the Sefer Chinuch, when they talk that every good or bad thing that happens to a person is because of an action is because of a good or bad action that they did. You're saying that that's specifically applying to a Jew? It seems from the Rambam that that would specifically apply to a Jew because that's only one eight miles of Yisrael. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, you, you you know, feel free to look up the the end of the Geras Teman where it's found, but that seems to be what he's saying quite explicitly. So. Okay. You got any more questions for me? Um, yeah, this one is... Uh, yeah, it, this is uh, from a certain member who wanted to remain un, unnamed. Uh, but you wanted to know if you thought that there was an inborn ability to perceive morality or justice, that we can kind of intuitively sense if something is immoral or not. And this was kind of um, brought yeah, how up. How does that relate somewhere. to? It, it was more relating to the to the slavery, the slavery podcast, and also the I guess also the racism podcast. That if you can kind of feel like there's something wrong with something, um, does that suggest that there actually is, or is it completely unrelated? Oh, so let me line that up with Judah's question because Judah asked a very similar thing. So he said, I think it's definitely true that when modern morals do not align with the morals of the Torah, which is true morality, one must follow the Torah. Judah's a smart man. A smart man. However, I think that we must be very careful when we claim that they don't align. I think that we often jump quickly to the Torah saying, Hashem says, when we don't always clearly know what 
sorry, Corona. We don't clearly know what Hashem wants from us. We can only follow what we think to be right, since we don't know if it's right. So if we have a strong thought that something is right and something else is wrong, then perhaps that is what the Torah really is saying. To be honest, I actually mostly agree with what you guys are saying. It's just that when the core value of our is contradicted to Torah value, before throwing out the core value, we must examine to make sure that Torah does contradict our core value. So I, th- I think to just to encapsulate what both of them are saying is that humans are born with a, like an inborn set of morality. Um, and I'll, I'll get to like the delineations in a second. Um, and the, the argument is that if we feel something is really wrong, then perhaps it's our job to try to figure out how Tyra make sure that Tyra is not going along with that core value because somehow the human is built with like this inherent compass um, that would align us to the proper path and therefore we should approach Tyra and use that as a variable in how we interpret Tyra. I think this is a fascinating question um, and I would bring up a couple points to perhaps, uh, like, discuss it. I don't know if I necessarily disagree right off the bat. I'm, I'm thinking about it as I'm talking, actually, but the, the... Oh, you want to say something, Matthew? Yeah, I mean, when I first got asked the question, I initially thought that, no, there is no, like, that intrinsic feeling is just kind of an emotion, and it doesn't necessarily follow any logical flow, um, and therefore it could just as well be incorrect as correct. Uh, then I was thinking of all the psukim that describe Hashem as, you know, Rahman or Chesed, uh, that he does Chesed. And if there's no intrinsic way of kind of feeling out those things, then those words kind of lose their meaning. Right? When we say Hashem's just, or justice, you, maybe you can say is more, but if we say Hashem's, you know, uh, a Rahman, but then we have no intrinsic way of understanding what a Rahman is, then it becomes difficult to exactly understand what those words can mean. Yeah, so it becomes... I agree with that, and it becomes very difficult because, like, I can sit here and try to make the idea that non-Jews being our slaves is kind for the non-Jew, um, or I can, you know, or I can try to make the idea that non-Jews and Jews are different sound moral to you, and I don't know if it'll work, right? Um, so, so let's yes, yeah, so let's let's go on that route for a little bit. So when I'm trying to explain an idea, so an idea is not intuitively moral to you. Now I'm trying to explain it to you, I'm trying to get it to be intuitively moral. So there's two ways I can go with that. I can just say like you have no idea what you're talking about. Your moral compass is way off, and you have to bow your moral compass to Tyra. Or now again, this is all assuming we're going to keep the truth of Tyra, because as we saw, other people are quick to bend the truth of Tyra. So that's for sure a wrong approach to bend the truth of Tyra. But let's say I want to keep the truth of Tyra. And I want it to make sense to you. So I hold that every part of Torah can make sense to every generation. Because that the Torah is meant to make sense. Now, sometimes it might be intuitive, sometimes not. But there has to be a way. Now, part of explaining Torah means I can find... Like, for example, this is what we kind of try to do, right? So we brought by the slavery, right? We try to bring ways that everybody agrees slavery, controlling of another person might be good. Right? So we said, um, I don't know if we brought this up, but a child. Everybody agrees controlling a child's action. A parent controlling a child's action is good for the child. Everybody agrees if somebody uh, is addicted to drugs, taking him to rehab may not be so bad, even though you're controlling his actions. So we try to find points that are intuitive and then try to intellectually make you draw the line between that which wasn't intuitive to that which is intuitive to get you try to rethink about it. Now, the inability to do so in a certain case might be our failing. That doesn't mean it can't be done. So perhaps I could, ex- I can never convince anybody that Jews and non-Jews being different is okay. But that could be a failing on my ability to draw that connection. We tried doing it by explaining the fact that everybody treats people with mental disabilities different, even though you're ascribing a difference to a group and then treating them differently. Um, but I don't know if that'll actually have the impact of the person going, oh yeah, that makes sense. I feel that. Like if I went to any college campus to try to say this, I'd be killed. And run off campus, even though I might be saying good things. So that just might be a failing on my end. Or, but I don't think we can throw out that people's moral compass can be so messed up and just so not aligned with Tara that there's no way to make a Tara idea make sense to them. And that's not the problem of, of on our end, the explainer, but that's in the problem of the listener. Yeah, I'd also make a distinction between the moral compass itself and like the application of that moral compass because we we see that in every generation, basically. 
um, what is considered moral and what's not considered moral shifts dramatically in terms of the application. And yet the underlying sentiment is usually said to be the same. We're trying to be kind, and therefore therefore you should do abortion. Or we're trying to be kind, therefore you shouldn't do abortion. Right. Now, using that same svara, using that same logic, the entire pop- or like 80% of the population shifted their position from it should never be done to it could be done in certain respect. And both of them are quoting kindness, which is a moral compass, as the reason for it. But it's a very strong point. Right. So outside of the psychopath, um, every human intuitively understands that being mean is wrong. Every human understands being kind is a good virtue. The question as to what to put in that variable, I think, is very much social based. And the terror gives us a, an objective thing to plug in. So yes, when we say Hashem's Rachmim, everybody knows what that means. Rachmim. That's a, that's a character that everybody should have. What to plug in there though, like what's the definition of Rachmim? We suggest that on one end it should be able to make sense, but on the other hand, you have to let Terra kind of be the social guidance that helps you align that compass and what you plug in to that, what you plug into morality, uh, mercy, should come from terror. I would just say one last point, which is people who are raised in a terror environment, um, I think it is fair to use something they, a core value to be part of your interpretation of terror because generally a core value of a person who grew up in a terror home comes from terror anyways. You just don't have the source or the source is somewhere else. So it is normal for from Judas to say, read a possible terror and say, wow, this just seems off because it's not off from like, what they're telling me on The View or what they're telling me on CNN or Fox News. It's off from what I've learned in a terror household. Now, again, you could still be wrong. You could have been told the wrong thing. Your parents could have had a wrong value system. But that doesn't mean that um, – doesn't mean you have no chance of your core value aligning with terror if you grew up in a terror household. All right, let's move on to our second questionnaire. Third questionnaire? Third, third questionnaire. Third questionnaire. Um, now, I just want to let you know that we have – again, we said we have not seen these questions before. So if you hear us thinking <laughs> – If you hear us thinking. That's the sound of us thinking. <laughs> no, I'm saying like this – we haven't seen this stuff before. So a lot of these things may catch us. You know, true thought – like pure thought takes time. It's not like you come up with these answers off the cuff of your cuff. It's not easy. You know what I'm saying? So I'm going to ask Monty a question right now. We'll see how quickly he gets the answer right. Um, but, it, you know, it's better to be slow and, and methodical and, and think it through than to just – Fire from the old hip. Okay, so this is from a uh, a dear mentor of ours, who's a you know fan of the show. He listens to uh, all the episodes, and uh, he usually has comments. He's usually negative, he's usually critical, but uh, always insightful. Always insightful. So we're not going to say his name because we didn't ask permission, but we're going to say he is a dear mentor. By the way, this uh, the audio right now is brought to you by not a dear mentor, not only a dear mentor, but a dear friend. Um, also, not going to say his name. We don't have permission. But uh, he sponsored this new audio setup and is allowing us to uh, help spread the truth, help spread help spread terror. So hopefully this will be as close for him. Okay, so now even after claiming that they should be treated properly, being second class also says their lives are less important than a Jew's. For example, we do not sacrifice a Jew's life to save another Jew. Yet it would seem that we may sacrifice a non-Jew's life to save a Jew. Giving traction, this gives traction to the idea of Jewish supremacy. So I think what he's asking is as follows. We're busy with trying to prove or trying to suggest there may be some sort of supremacy to the Jew. He says, why look any further than the idea that a you can kill a non-Jew to save a Jew, but you can't kill a Jew to save a non-Jew. Or vice versa. You can um, you can sacrifice, uh, let's say it better like that, you can sacrifice a non-Jew's life to save a Jew, but you can't sacrifice a Jew's life to save a non-Jew. Uh, there's a lach and helchus ritech. The only type of life that you can sacrifice for another is a non-Jew for a Jew. A Jew for a Jew, you can't sacrifice. You can probably sacrifice a non-Jew for a non-Jew, but you can't sacrifice a non-Jew for a Jew. Doesn't that alone suggest supremacy? So uh, off the cuff, if I was going to shoot from the hip, but we're trying not to. I'd say that there. I'd say that that's more what, what we discussed earlier. That there's a difference between. Um, just having, you know, an intrinsic different neshama and having a different purpose and maybe a more important purpose. I would say that that does imply that there's a more important purpose that Jews have. And I think there's numerous... Well, at sources. least alive. 
that yeah, it's more important for a Jew to be. Yeah, I mean, I'd say at the very least, it implies that it's more important for a Jew to be alive than non-Jew to be alive. I think yeah, there's no other way around it. That's I mean, literally yeah. The law is you sacrifice one for the other. One so plus one equals two. It's, it's right. That's what it's saying. Um, so I, we were avoiding that. We weren't trying to discuss that. I think that's more a slightly different topic. But I, I want to harp on that point you just said a little bit that. It's not – again, like people say, oh, that's terrible. It's not terrible because if the non-Jew – we're all just serving Hashem. We're all trying to do what Hashem wants from us. So the type of non-Jew that would say, hey, this is what Hashem wants from us. I'm going to lay down my life for the Jew's life because we're both in this together like a pawn which will sacrifice itself for a, a different piece on the chessboard. Then that non-Jew will go to the highest place in heaven for doing that. So again, we're all just talking, we're not talking about being excluded from Hashem's purpose. We're all talking about how do we serve Hashem? How do we do what we want, what he wants in this world? A Jew does it one way, non-Jew does it the other way. Just in our head, we're like, well, if you're killing a non-Jew for a Jew, that's like game over for him. It's not. It's just another stage. Jews don't believe in life and death. The Torah doesn't believe in life, physical life and death as being the end all. So the fact we're asking a non-Jew to step aside his physical life for a Jew's physical life, is just another step in the process of how Hashem asks us to serve Him. Yeah, and uh, again, the the focus of this was more just on the neshama and proving a difference in neshama. I think there are numerous sources, not just that one, uh, which was suggested as a difference in importance of role. Uh, let's let's limit it to being alive at this point. Um, I think there are numerous sources even suggesting not, but the purpose of this podcast was specifically a difference in Neshama, and that doesn't imply a difference in Neshama as much as a difference, as he points out, importance. It's possible he was trying to point out, because I have a very similar question um, uh, from from someone, where he also asks that who who really cares if there's a difference in Neshama or not? Um, at the end of the day, we see that Hashem chose us to serve him. Like, we're the, we're the chosen people. Um, we have the mitzvahs, nobody else does. They have certain mitzvahs. They don't have our mitzvahs. Uh, so why isn't that already show that we are more important? We have a bigger role to play. We could all say that serving Hashem is the biggest role. We are the main uh, focus of, of serving Hashem. We got the Torah. So why isn't that already? So I think it's true. I think it's correct. We are. But that, that wasn't exactly the focus of this podcast. Well, the focus of the podcast was really a combat idea that we're inherently the same. And we're trying to prove that in Terra's view, we're not inherently the same. But I do agree with the question that from from an academic or from from somebody who's trying to like make the tar more more peaceful or more like more acceptable by the non-Jew. Say no, there's no different, there's no intrinsic difference between a Jew and a non-Jew. As we pointed out a few times through the podcast, not only does it not help, it actually makes it worse. But it's very clear from the sources that there's a difference in importance. Right. I think the average person you tell them that oh, Jews' life, physical life, is more important would be way more offended than if you said uh, Jews and non-Jews have different souls right um i think we can understand you know different roles different souls but to say life ends and life life ends for one and not for the other is a little more powerful but again that's the whole point of this podcast the whole point of our podcast because people ask like well, why are you getting into these issues like who cares like why are you trying to stoke you know controversy it's not that's not the point of it the point is to help people understand what hashem wants in this world because that's ultimately the best way for us to live as humans. Every single one of us is to understand what Hashem wants from the world and understand how Hashem views his creations and understand the role of everything. Um, and it's also, as a side note, which is not – it's not unique to this topic of, let's say, racism or whatever you want to call it. But the idea that one should start operating on Tyra's morals, meaning a person – it's interesting that people come into this like – I'm saying – I'm talking about religious Jews come into this like we don't want Tyre to say this. Why would you not want Tyre to say this? We should want Tyre to say whatever it's saying. You shouldn't have a want what you want Tyre to say. Tyre should just be the guidebook how Hashem wants his world to run and you should comport yourself, your actions, your emotions, and your thinking towards what Hashem wants in this world. I don't think it's so complicated in terms of that. Well, um, I, th I think their point is more like we were discussing earlier, that you do have this moral compass, which we are agreeing for the most part is is uh, is accurate. And then the question is in application. So there are some things in Torah where even you have like Chazal saying like that can't be what it's saying because it doesn't fit the Torah Shkafa in general. Well, it doesn't fit the Torah Shkafa in general. 
which does match the the natural moral compass to the question you just have to make sure that where you're coming from is is the pure moral compass of the Torah. well it doesn't match the natural moral compass it matches the Torah's moral compass which i think matches the natural moral compass well so i'm saying not the not the not in terms not of what the, you plug not in it. particular right. right okay so that, i'm saying that's a whole difference and I, I think it's deeper than what you're saying it's not just simply like oh i come into terra and this is what i thought it would say and now i'm you know like i have to work on myself like this is not what it's saying um like we saw in that article written by that person the hikir journal he literally titled his article an alternative truth and a search sorry inconvenient, inconvenient truth and a search for alternative like that that's abhorrent that's an abhorrent way to read Tyra. You're saying this is what it sounds like Tyra's saying, but that's inconvenient, so I'm going to look for some other way. No, look for truth, and whatever it is, comport yourself to that. And the reason why I think it's important is because it's not just about this topic. It's about everything. It's about every aspect of Allah. There are so many aspects of Allah that make – and so many aspects of Jewish Hashkafa that make us feel uncomfortable. And guess what? That's the point. The point is to grow, to change yourself. It's not to tell Tyra how to change. It Tyra is here to tell you how to change, and it's not in a negative like, like uh, subserve yourself to Tyra. It's this is positive for you. This will help you achieve the ultimate pinnacle of mankind. Is you're changing yourself, you're taking a natural state of being, and you're creating a perfect godly being on earth through that. So to be bothered by his inconvenience as if that's somehow a way to avoid your moral duty because you bothered by its truth and searching for inconvenience. right i mean it's it's that that's why i think it's so important because it's the same thing by by dressing sneezely right um it's the same thing it's yes it's uncomfortable to not look as as beautiful as you could or to not look as attractive as you could but guess what you're better off as a human allowing yourself to be uncomfortable to grow and once you grow, you'll be way more comfortable. And it's the same thing with this issue. Allow yourself to grow to what real morality is. Real morality is not a modern view of right and wrong. Real morality is how Hashem views the world. And that's what we want. So if you come and say, I don't, I disagree with your sources, then by all means, go ahead, disagree with my sources. But don't disagree because you don't want Tara to tell you what to do. Uh, and I think the, uh, the last point here, um, is one of my friends pointed out that let's say I have uh, you know Jews and non-Jews and I, I point out that the Rambam says they're similar in you know 10 manners and they're dissimilar in five other manners so it doesn't matter how similar they are the fact that there's dissimilarities or there's differences between them is already enough to to decide the issue as to whether they're the same or different you could have a million things which are the same. If there's one thing that's different, that's already a difference. Yeah, but the difference has to be reflected in an inherent difference, and that's what we're trying to prove. There's no question, there's no discussion that we have a different role and there's something else going on. We have a tire, they don't. There's different halachas, Jew, non-Jew. So that, that, I don't think that's a question by anybody. No, I think he was referring to, like, intrinsic. Let's say I have one intrinsic difference and a bunch of things which are even intrinsically the same. Oh, yeah, sure. No, no. That would yeah. already be enough. Well, that's what we were trying to say. The fact that the Ramam says that all humans are the same in regards to the difference between them and animals does not suggest that all humans are the same in regards to everything in regards to themselves right that was the same thing with the navua thing right that uh the guy in his article tried to bring prophecy the fact that ram holds the non-jews are can be prophets as a proof that he holds non-jews and jews are identical in all aspects i don't know what you're talking about that's one aspect yes non-jews and jews can be identical in their aspect of achieving prophecy that does not mean they're identical in all in every aspect of their soul right and I think that that's uh, I think that that's a mistake that one can make. So again, we're we're not trying to be controversial. We're not trying to get people to act towards with hate towards others. In fact, the whole point of figuring out what terror wants is because, as we stress, this is good for humanity and will cause you to appreciate. It will cause you to have a great appreciation for humanity because you'll understand where their role is. And we brought sources that suggest how holy a Naju can be, like a Kaingadal, like Kaidish Kedashim, and there's no problem with that. The Naju could be as holy as he can be. As he can be. I'm saying he can be a, a Naju can achieve a level that your average Jew is not going to be living at. But that doesn't mean they're the same at all. And you don't have you don't it doesn't have to be the same. You can appreciate each one for what it is. And I was just uh it's just a personal anecdote. I was at a, a hotel um and I it was uh we were there was a simcha there. 
and so there was non-Jews and Jews there because the Jews were renting out for the Simcha. And I heard a, a little kid, one of the little Jewish kids say, like he saw there was a couple that was getting married, a non-Jewish couple. They were taking pictures at the hotel. And and the uh, the little kid said, ugh, a Gaish wedding. So, you know, I was a little, sometimes I was a little kid, but uh, the sentiment comes from somewhere, but I was a little, so I didn't really know what to think about it because on one hand, if you're talking about like the negative aspects of secular weddings, um, which by the way, a lot of Jewish weddings are starting to creep into Jewish weddings, um, then you're right, that is ich, and that's appropriate response, ich. Um, you know, public displays of affection, ich. Um, immorality, ich. Not really being, you know, not really, uh, or marrying out of infatuation, ich. Marrying out of for money, ich. But the way it's said, the way it was said, like, ugh, Gaish wedding was like implied, like, oh, the fact that two non Jews are doing anything, that's ugh. So I think that's an attitude we have to really try to drive out because it's not the fact that they're non Jews, which is ugh, it's the immorality of it is ugh. But if they're being moral, it's a beautiful thing. Anything a non Jew does which is moral is a beautiful thing. It's Kaish Kadashim. Yeah. The Rambam actually says that if you have a, a, a Jew who's a, a Mumar, who like, who denies everything, He's actually at a lower level than a non-Jew who's keeping the Shemesh as well. Well, in a certain sense. In yeah. a certain sense. It seems seems from the context he's talking about the way you treat them. Um, he brings out the fact that, that's a little bit, I don't know if that's the, the topic over here, but he brings out the fact that you're, you don't have to rescue a non-Jew, but this kind of Jew who's doing the, the complete opposite of what a Shem wants in all, in the most important manner, he's denying the Shem's existence, that person you actually would. Right, the mitzvah to kill him. Mitzvah to kill him, yeah. Right. Okay, so that um that I think concludes our mailbag. Look, guys, if you wrote in more, we'd have more questions to deal with. You'd be with us for another couple hours. But I mean, you got. I hope you, you, the listener, got a little bit of an insight into how we think. Because again, this is a little bit off the cuff. We're having these conversations. You saw us disagree a little bit, hedge a little bit, um, and try to get to a truth. You know, maybe at the beginning of the conversation, we had one idea. Maybe as we spoke, we clarified that idea and crystallized that idea. And I think that. You, you know, as you're listening, you can have these conversations you had or have this conversation with someone you value their ideas and talk it through and really don't, don't have an emotional attachment to anything. Just talk through the idea and see. 20, 20 idea. Yeah, 20 idea. Don't have the emotional attachment. Just talk through the idea and see what makes sense and what you come out with. And I think, um, I'm guaranteeing that if you throw aside your emotion and think about the issue, you would be left with the unescapable conclusion like we were, that the Torah does not hold that Jews and non-Jews are similar, and there isn't any opinion that one can hang their hat on to say that, yes, definitively, Jews and non-Jews are identical. All right, that's it for today.